This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, another chance to hear two of our favorite music interviews so far this year. Of course, it's only June, so more good stuff to come. But we'll start with the Lumineers. They hit it big with songs like Ho Hey and Stubborn Love. Now, four years later, comes their sophomore release. Oh, Ophelia, you've been on my mind, girl, since the flood. Some of the songs, like this one, Ophelia, are meditations on the band's fast rise to fame and what comes next. Keep in mind, their first album went platinum plus. They were nominated for Grammys. The president even included one of their tracks on his Spotify playlist. When their new album, Cleopatra, dropped in April, I sat down with singer and guitarist Wesley Schultz and Jeremiah Freights, who plays the drums and piano. Schultz shared his take on their rapid rise. For me, I feel actually pretty pretty okay about it all. I, nothing really broke for me until I was nearly 30. So I think that alone I'd sort of formed some idea of who I am and who I was at the time. That if You're this, not a child star, in yeah, other words. Yeah, and, and to be honest, if I was 18 or 19, I had enough trouble dealing with it around 30. It's really, it's just an odd thing to have people treat you, I guess, sort of differently and look at you differently. Um, it can go to people's heads. I can see how it would. But um, for me, I, I didn't really take it seriously because I stopped taking uh, seriously the sort of lack of anything happening and as though that was some indicator of that we weren't doing good things before anything broke. So. I see. That is to say you took the the lull that was before this uh, with a grain of salt and you're applying the same to fame. Yeah, just the idea of... Uh, I just like the idea of keeping your own score about your life and and the things that you're doing in it and not having, not turning to some external keeper of that, you know, like, oh, this album's not half as good because it sold half the amount of records. I know that to be false, you know, by by bands that I listen to and like anyway. That is to say that you have bands you love who aren't necessarily all that popular. Yeah, and when we first moved here, Nathaniel Rayleigh would be a good example of someone who's been doing it at a high level for a long time. And now he's getting levels of recognition uh, that I think could have came to him way back when we first moved here, I don't know, six years ago. Yeah. Nathaniel Rateliff, who's now with the, the Night Sweats, that's his latest uh, iteration. He's been with Born in the Flood before that. Uh, Jeremiah, on this notion of, of success, whether there's a curse to it, it's pure blessing. What, what do you make of it? I think it's a pure blessing in that uh, it's a it's prompted me to kind of frame my thinking differently. I think when we were the underdog, I never stopped and appreciated anything we were doing because we were always, me and Wes, driving the band, writing the songs. We always were trying to get the next gig. And for me, one of the things I always wanted to do was play Red Rocks and collectively between Wes and myself, played Letterman and go to Europe. And I thought though, between those three things, I thought that would give us maybe a decade of hard work to do it. And we did it you know, arguably too quickly to the point where, all right, well, I'm running out of checkpoints. I should just stop and really appreciate what's happening because this is incredible. And I don't think that was really ever in my character. I mean, I'm only 30 right now, but I think stopping to appreciate things and take a deep breath was not really in my forte. I think it was more, don't appreciate what I did yesterday. What can I do with Wes tomorrow and today? Yeah. I think also to add to that, we, we have an audience that, uh, was never there prior to the first album that's sort of waiting for what we're going to do next and how they feel about it's out of our control. But just the idea that anyone would be waiting uh, for us, whether it's at a show 
where it sells out early or at all or an album that people are interested in hearing i think it's uh to me i'd i'd welcome that pressure and i think mm. it's a it's it's really you know, a blessing in, in that way. Well, even people who, uh, you know, perhaps weren't intimately familiar with your first album certainly were familiar with your first single, Ho mm. Hey, uh, because it was played so much on radio stations across the country. I've been trying to do it right. Hey. I've been living a lonely life. Hey. I've been sleeping here instead. Hey. I've been sleeping in my bed. Hey. Did you get sick of that song? No, never. I mean, they're all our children. And uh, people get sick of their children sometimes. <laughs> sick of it, That's though. True. <laughs> That's true. Maybe that was a bad metaphor. I'm not a parent, but uh, I don't think I've ever been sick of any of our music. I think that I think I became sick of three years of touring. I really wanted to get back to to writing um, music with Wes. I felt like that was something that was getting lost in the endless touring. But, you know, songs like Ho Hey and Stubborn Love, they really opened up the keys, gave us the keys to the world. They allowed us to tour in new and foreign countries and allowed us to uh, shine light on the rest of the songs off the, that album. But you've had the experience of listening to a song too many times and starting to hate it. Someone else's song. Right. Is that why we hate songs eventually? Is because there's someone else's. Well, in I other think, words, yeah, I think I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, no, I was just in the dentist yesterday, and it was playing. Uh, <laughs> you had your mouth was, open in the yep. chair, and then I went to Fun Six, and it was playing there. This is a fun restaurant. Today, yeah. You know, to this day, you know, it's still being played, and I think I just uh, that's odd to me because I don't know if any song deserves that much play. It's just not that's not natural. <laughs> we would stick it second or third in every set eventually because we had a whole album that we were proud of and we, we connected with. And I felt like if that's what you're here for, then here, I'll, I'll make it easy for you. And then you can leave after that or you can stay and see what else is on this record. Hmm. Uh, and I, I've been to shows where the person holds back the big songs till the end and I always resented that. Or don't that. play them at all. <laughs> yeah, and I sort of resented that. Uh, so for me, I wanted to sort of say, hey, I recognize that some people maybe came with a friend and aren't familiar with the whole catalog but let's just put it out here for you and then you can make your own decision later but it turned out to be i think a helpful thing because people did realize that there was a full record there and uh to be listened to yeah and the more i listened to that record and i'll say that that uh, hohe was my introduction to it it was so refreshing because it was not um kind of like one hit wonder territory there, there were so many other good songs on the album Thanks, um man. not everyone can say that i guess you know who has a big hit, breakout hit mm. So basically four years between the first and the second album. And that was, I guess, Jeremiah, because of the touring. There was just such an emphasis on that. We tried to write, but it was difficult to do it remotely. It just wasn't in our wheelhouse. I mean, there wasn't – we were trying to not lose that that muscle of songwriting because that was a big fear. You know, tour two and a half, three years, and then you're supposed to just go back in the studio and start working out again. And if you let that muscle atrophy, it's it's dangerous territory. Well, gosh, we should hear some more music. So why don't we listen to more of Ophelia? This is the, the second verse. I, I got a new girlfriend. He feels like he's on top. This is a song about falling in love. 
but it's not falling in love with a, a person, I understand. Yeah, so Ophelia was written in this sort of stream of consciousness way, and it was about falling in love with the fame or the attention side of things that's so temperamental and so temporary in the music world. You're the bright, shiny toy for a period of time, and then then the baby's going to pick out another one, and you're just going to have to deal with that. <laughs> and so for me, I never really wanted to fall in love with any of that because I always viewed it as you know, someone kind of liking you for something that's not necessarily all you. It's the mm. moment. You two kind of locked yourself away in a house in Denver to write this new album. It was a house sort of hidden in plain sight in, uh, in Denver and nothing particularly that special about it other than it was going to allow us to do what we originally were doing. You know, all of our lives was writing music together in very plain and ordinary circumstances. You know, there's this old upright piano that uh, actually got sent out from my old house in Ramsey, New Jersey, where we both grew up. And we've written a lot of stuff on that because it's just kind of this old kind of dirtbag piano, for lack of a better description. <laughs> Is it in tune? Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. Okay. It's in tune and it gets the job done. And there's something about it that's just great. So that was always – that was the staple. And then Wes had all his guitars on these racks and we had a computer to record the ideas and microphones. But it's it's mostly me and a piano, Wes and a guitar, and – once the song starts to get legs in that environment, you know, very stripped down, open mic style, then we start to flesh it out. We never ever go into Pro Tools or the recording environment thinking, let's lay this down and we'll we'll figure it out later in post-production. We'll add delay or mm. insane drums. It's always a very simple idea that has to reveal itself. And so by the time you get to the studio, it's pretty much laid out. Yeah, yeah, the, it's pretty well formed, most of the album. Yeah, the only song that didn't follow that formula of being done before going into the studio is Angela. The strangers in this town They raise you up just to cut you down Oh, Angela, it's a long time coming When we were going to rent the house in Denver, it was in the same neighborhood that we originally moved to. We were walking around with the, the lady showing us, and then we're like, we're going to be honest... We're in a band, and we're going to be making music here, and her face just dropped. We were already, like, exed, you know. We were out at that point. And so she's kind of, like, not really going to rent it to us. And I was like, no, we're, we're going to work normal hours. We don't have jobs. This is our job. Uh, we're in the Lumineers. And, and she just was like, wait, what? And then she started coming around. Maybe she would rent us this house. <laughs> and then we kept really normal business hours. We would work, you know, 9 to 5 or 10 to 6. And so the neighbors never knew what we were doing in there once no one ever knocked on the door to tell us to turn it down like Jerry was saying it was kind of hidden in plain sight in the sense of it would never suspect that someone would be working on an album the way we make songs is so small you know it starts in such a small way that you don't really hear someone wailing on drums most of the day so it was kind of a funny experience to one of the few times we've name dropped to try to get something and it worked it, it worked yeah wesley i want to ask you a little bit about your vocals so on the track Ophelia, and then on another one, Long Way From Home, you let your voice crack. Got a you got. It seems like a vulnerable thing to do as a vocalist. Is, and I don't know, is it a flaw in your voice or is it just a quality of your voice? How do you perceive it? It's something I really like about my voice, I guess, if you could say that. I know I listen to, I think it's called Mother, John Lennon. Uh, mother you held me but I never held you that whole and then he his voice starts to break throughout that song and that's one of the things I admired about his 
uh, ability to push his voice to the limit to where it's breaking. It's actually kind of distorting. And uh, I remember seeing a comment from someone saying that there's actually a vocal issue on some social media thing about the recording engineer must have screwed up because there's a clip in Ophelia. And it's not. It's just my voice actually kind of naturally doing pushing to the max and so it makes for an interesting moment every night singing that moment too but i really like going there because i do like feeling like i can be vulnerable up there i think that's i'm not a ham i'm not an entertainer you know by my nature so when i go on stage that comes from a very different place than than let's say a lot of other people it's very it takes me takes a lot out of me yeah and it's not showing off right so i think it, it, it gets pulled up almost conjured up from a different place in, in me. And so I think that helps me to uh, to go there, is to have those moments, like, vocally. It reminded me of, I heard Samuel L. Jackson saying that, you know, he has a, he had a really bad stutter. But if he said, mother he could totally not stutter. It was like it helped him get over that. And for me, shouting like that, it helps me sort of get over this tension inside of me. All right, from vocal quality to... Lyrical quality. There is a lyric in the song Long Way From Home, which also features that lovely kind of vocal crack. Um, and, and the lyric stood out to me. It's so simple. Hospital gowns never fit like they should. Hospital gowns never fit like they should. We yelled at the nurse, didn't do good. So many of us can identify with that being in that awkward gown in the doctor's office how does that make it into a song it's one of my favorite songs because it's sort of it was cathartic to write you know i was like it was one of the only songs i can remember where i was writing lyrics and being in tears and then going back to the guitar and singing more and crying again and then you know not and writing and it was about losing my dad and i remember the final night that scene i'm setting is uh, at the end of it it says more morphine the last words you spoke and that was the last thing he said he was in so much pain he was calling out for relief of that and that's what he said it was a very odd thing to hear your dad say as his like last words more morphine the last words you moan at last I was sure that you weren't far away from home more from the Lumineers as our music special continues coming up how the Denver band accidentally got its name this is Colorado Matters from CPR News It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's return to my conversation from April with two members of the Lumineers, Wesley Schultz and Jeremiah Freitz. The Denver band's sophomore release is called Cleopatra. Grief seems to be something of a motivator for the Lumineers. I mean, you said that you grew up in Ramsey, New Jersey, both of you. Um, You make Denver your home now, but uh, Wesley, you were close friends with Jeremiah's older brother, Josh, who passed away in his late teens. And I understand, uh, Jeremiah, that that incident really led you to music and, and finding solace in it. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's not so easy as, you know, the passing of that <clears throat> occurrence. And then I discovered music. You know, I went through a lot of years of not really caring about anything and having a lot of anger and sadness and not really understanding what to do with all that grief. So I think I think throughout high school and then into college around that time meeting Wes, it was like this big buildup of I just kind of threw myself, trying to throw myself into something positive and constructive because 
with that amount of grief, your system is overloaded and doesn't know what to do. You're kind of in this freak out moment where nothing really makes sense and you feel kind of jaded and sort of a lot of anger. So I felt like, you know, um, experiencing something like that, I'm trying to do something right with it. You know, it's like you're given this this experience that you can't change whether you want to or not and you have to deal with it in some way. So I think turning life experiences into to music is great. I mean, whether it's something big, like losing a family member prematurely or whether it's waiting in line at the bank and seeing something interesting from another customer. It's like... Wait, has that happened? Have you written a song based on a bank trip? No, I have not written a song, but I've been in <laughs> banks or maybe a Safeway uh, shopping line and you just see things that are so minuscule in the grand scheme of life that are so fascinating and interesting that... David Byrne talked about, like he says, love is too big of an idea to him, and he talks about writing about like a lamp or something, and <laughs> it's just true. kind of an interesting take. I mean, he's a profound lyricist; he knows that, but he's also kind of poking fun at don't take life too seriously. There's, there's like the minuscules, beautiful too, I think. And David Byrne from Talking Heads, yeah. And uh, well, I mean, that kind of goes back to the hospital gown. I mean, granted, that was a really heavy time in your life, Wesley, but it's this tiny detail that allowed me to connect with you, you know, as a listener of the album. Yeah, I feel like a lot of that, um, not the irony, I feel like we never use that word correctly, but the odd thing about songwriting is that uh, the more you can tell your story and the details of that story, it's funny, but people seem to sort of take them on as their own. And, yeah. and, and it's inspiring. It makes you want to, as an artist, dig dig deeper and go deeper because it it's a good cathartic thing to have. Have happened, Jeremiah. And as a huge compliment to that lyric, it reminds me in, in a similar way. I was a huge fan of uh, the show Breaking Bad, and in the pilot, the first episode, um, Walter White is being diagnosed with terminally ill cancer and has maybe six months left to live. And Walter White's character looks at the doctor and says, "You have mustard on the collar of your shirt." And the doctor says, "Did, did you understand what I just told you?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah, I got it, but you have like this mustard." And it was just this really surreal. He's kind of ignoring this this massive thing and sort of shining light on something very mundane, mundane, but it's all part of the same, I don't know, essence. Tapestry and, or yeah. Tapestry. And yeah, there's a lot of imagery in the song, uh, gun song. It was a pistol, a Smith and Wesson. Oh, oh, la, 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 la. This song was also in the time when my dad had just passed away. And uh, so soon after that, that the, the clothes were still in his drawers. And so I was running late for work uh, and realized I didn't have black socks and I knew I'd be sent home without those. So um, You were a waiter or something? Yeah, I was a bartender at a, a pretty crappy job. And um, I ended up reaching into his sock drawer in a hurry. I was running late and... Uh, unexpectedly pulling out his pistol that I didn't know he ever had or had in there, much less. I was disappointed that I couldn't ask him about it. That was the first emotion. And the second was, what else did I know about this person that I was supposedly so close with? And then it became true that that was true of any relationship I had. You know, we, we have these different things that we don't share. And uh, I also, from a standpoint of lyrics, it was it was an interesting song because each verse sort of takes on this... Um, says, I don't want a single gun, but if I did, you'd be the one to hold it, aim it. And you think it's all of a sudden a bad thing. And then it says, make all the bad men run, like protecting me. I don't own a single gun, but if I did, you'd be the one 
football of the bad men run But I don't own a single gun So each verse kind of takes that on, that challenge of presenting something and then almost like a funhouse mirror, shifting it into this brand new direction. I try to do that on each verse uh, lyrically. People are going to say you're a band, uh, you know, based in Colorado. This is about gun control. <laughs> I guess they will. Yeah, it's, I think it's an important thing that we all need to talk about, but the, the song wasn't written with an intention like that. I think that happens a lot in politics and, and music. Well, speaking of, of names, so that's gun song. Um, I want to get to the name of the Lumineers. I understand that it was not your name to begin with, and in fact, you took it on kind of by accident, Jeremiah. Yeah, we were uh, sort of given the name. You know, you don't really you don't choose your first name when you're born, and it's kind of the same thing. We were under a different moniker at the time, and which was uh, which was Wesley Jeremiah. Wesley Jeremiah, deeply creative. Really? Wow. <laughs> right? Yeah. We just forgot the word band at the end of that. <laughs> Which yeah. proved to be a troublesome name at times because the sound guy, you know, it, he would think it was one person showing up and it, it was not one person. It was Is a, there a Wesley Jeremiah in the house in yeah. other words? Yeah, yeah, I exactly. see. Okay. So, yeah, the guy said uh, up next, Lumineers are playing. And I think Wes politely corrected him and said, you know, that's not our name, but uh, we're called, you know, we would start playing our set. And then maybe that night or a couple of days after we thought, what was that name? That was pretty cool. So the the real Lumineers at the time did not show up and you just kind of went on stage? Yeah. So they were there the next week, the same slot. <laughs> uh, you know, he just had his weeks mixed up, which is odd in, its, in and of itself because you never really have an announcer at shows. It's like a 1950s idea of like, up next, we have the Lumineers. Like it wasn't, that never happens at clubs. But for some reason it was at this particular club. And he was on the wrong week on his pages. So, so is there some dude who who still thinks of himself as the Lumineer? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, we looked them up. We added the, so it became the Lumineers, and never really expected to use it because that's just the essence of how you think. We weren't thinking that far ahead. We just thought it sounds good. It fits. We'll figure it out later. And for um, anyone that's ever tried to come up with band names, it's a horrible, agonizing process. Everything sounds stupid, and yeah. it's just. It's bad. It's and really we, hard. We were pretty good at making bad band names. But uh, the other thing about it was uh, they stole it from uh, a dental veneer company. So A dental veneer company? Yeah. So when you look up the <laughs> Lumineers today, yeah. what will come up first is this dental veneer company. And they're paying a lot of money to come up first on those Wait, results. really? You guys aren't first? No, because they're they're bribing Google. The, legally bribing. Okay, wait. Hold on. I'm lo- Lumineers. I want to try this. They should be at the top. Those like no, least... you guys, really? you guys have moved you past the the veneers. No. Yeah. Let Even me show you the, the screen. Up top? Yeah. The Lumineers on oh, sale now. Buy tickets. Maybe they gave up. Look up the Lumineers. The Lumineers. Lumineers teeth that comes up first in the automatic. No, it's you guys. You oh, we did have it. made it. Yeah. This is the day. I'm so glad I could be here for this moment. <laughs> I've always wanted to. Beat the dental community out. It's always been a little dream. <laughs> what I find remarkable about this, this latest album is that the instrumentation is really pretty straightforward, but the sound is huge. Yeah. And you're not achieving a huge sound, you know, through like auto-tune and all the kind of stuff that a lot of pop music has today. How are you doing that? I think that it's 
So much of the credit needs to go to Ryan Hewitt, the engineer of this album. He really dialed in these sounds and tones and just overall aesthetic to a degree that I didn't think could exist. I mean, he really knocked it out of the park. Are you playing really hard on the instruments? Sometimes, yeah, and that really can elicit a better sound. You know, a for example, a light like snare drum versus a loud hit snare drum will be recorded differently. Even though in post you can turn up the volume, you want to be recording it at its optimal intensity. And I think that they found a great room for Wes to do vocals and sometimes vocals and guitar together. Mm. And that can really break through that the barrier between listener and, and writer. Things like that were implemented in just such a smart way. Yeah, and if I could just piggyback off that, I think um, I think there was an onus put on what sounds were going into the mic, not what we could do with them once they were recorded. So a lot of time was spent like scientists testing out different amps until we got the one. I tried six or seven different vocal mics before we settled on the one that was this weird Russian mic. And I think putting an onus on that means it's kind of less work at the end of the day, but it also sounds better because you're not in post uh, – putting all these effects on things and trying to give them steroids. They're already sounding big uh, naturally. It's a weird Russian mic. Is it Soviet? It's I don't not think old. it's that old. Okay, okay. Yeah. No, it's it's this white Russian mic that I probably couldn't pronounce uh, that just happened to sound good when I would sing on it versus the other ones. I want to go out uh, with one of your older songs. A little strange, I know, because you have a new album, but this is a song about uh, a candidate. And it's an election year, so it's been stuck in my mind. This track is called... It's called The Big Parade. The Big Parade. Uh, do you want to say a few words about it? It was originally called Mob Rule. Uh, <laughs> and every verse is a new vignette. And I, the idea I loved playing with was that every verse involves a big crowd. Um, so in the beginning, it almost seems like it's a, you know, it's a funeral for a, a famous politician, but then it's actually the guy just coming down in a victory parade and the next scene is about you know a boxer walking to the ring and every scene involves just a, a large crowd and, and the backstory behind that and that was the challenge of writing and I think it has this sort of sister quality to it, it's almost related to Cleopatra in the way of it's this it's this bigger song lyrically it tackles a lot more than, than some of the other tracks gentlemen thanks for being with us yeah thank you so much thank you so much and oh my my oh hey hey here he comes the candidate Blue-eyed boy, United States, vote for him, the candidate. Wesley Schultz and Jeremiah Freights of the Lumineers. The Denver band's new album is Cleopatra. And this musical episode of Colorado Matters continues with Netherlands' Elephant Revival, their secret to getting along after many years together. This is CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We got some bad news as we put together today's music special. That Netherland folk band Elephant Revival lost their instruments when their tour bus caught on fire last week. Guitarist and singer Daniel Rodriguez found reason to be grateful. Quote, we are so lucky to have escaped and the show must go on. Elephant Revival was having a banner year, top billing at Red Rocks last month, and a new album, Petals, which the band says is a departure from its usually pared down sound. Hello, you move with me and I dance. Hello, you move me like the sea. Hello, you show me what our fears are made of. Who loves me, love, loves me just to be. 
This is Hello You Who, and it highlights some of the new instruments the band experimented with, like cello and kick and snare drums. Earlier this year, I spoke with Daniel Rodriguez and singer Bonnie Payne, who also plays washboard and musical saw. You two founded the band a decade ago. This is your first album with producer Sam Kassirer, who's worked with popular acts like Josh Ritter and Lake Street Dive. Uh, You've been opening for Ritter on his tour. Do you feel that you have to change your sound to reach a wider audience at all? Or is this new sound simply musical exploration, your sort of curiosity as musicians? It's a pretty natural musical exploration. Um, with uh, We added a few different elements that also kind of led us in the direction that seems like we're going with the pedal steel and the cello and a little bit of um, more edgier percussion at times. Edgier percussion. What does edgier percussion sound like, Claudia? Um We've included a snare and a kick and some rusty chains on the album. and uh, Some rusty chains <laughs> as, as a musical instrument. Tell me about that. So uh, the producer, Sam Kassir, actually stopped off at a uh, garage sale and and bought a whole bunch of different chains. And uh, on a particular song called Pedals, the actual the title track, he mic'd up um, Charlie dropping the chains on the ground in a rhythmic pattern. So you get that. And this is your bandmate, uh, Charlie Rose. actually um, was at the garage sale trying out different chains and you know you can only imagine <laughs> for like almost an hour or something he said. <laughs> different size chains yeah. yeah the ones that he got were you know these really gnarly big link chains that were you know really rusty those those ones sounded mm-hmm. the best and he had some some kind of smaller ones too and like the dropping and lifting of them made two different sounds What did you think of this idea when he brought it to you? I think it was actually our idea to begin with. I don't remember whose I th- idea was. I, I liked it, though. Because the, the song has a very... Uh, Bonnie writes a lot of merry time-ish. You know, you have this imagery of you're on this big old ship crossing the ocean, and, and there's a lot of adventure and mystery in it. And somehow those chains kind of created that image and I think I heard of Tom Waits doing it once and I was like oh that would be so good I'm really glad you brought up the word maritime because I got a very maritime feel from a number of the tracks on this album I'm going over the sea a bunch of landlubbers from, you know, Netherlands and lions doing writing about the ocean in the mountains. Dan grew up on the ocean, so there's that element. And then there's um, a story that I've been kind of writing, or it's been writing itself, with all these songs that are related to each other. And a lot of that has to do with the ocean. A lot of that takes place 
on the Irish seat, particularly. This is like serial songwriting, Bonnie. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it means that you have been writing songs that relate to each other from album to album. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you miss the ocean? You know, I do, though we tour a lot. And so we do hit the California coast and the East Coast quite a bit and, you know, different countries and their coasts. God, the coast of Wales is really amazing. Did the tour bring you there? Our tour did bring us there, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's uh, absolutely true that place inspires you, but so do people. And I understand the band got together to brainstorm for this new album a little over a year ago. And this was after you all lost a good friend to breast cancer. Tell me about how that loss inspired a song that you wrote called Peace Tonight. The song um, is pretty much a direct inspiration of our friend, you know, Teresa, who we lost. Um, You know, I say lost, but she's definitely in the ethers there playing with the wind or something like that but it's really the emotions and that she has sparked within me and and just really the spirit of her personality is in that song and she thanks the sky and she walks the earth and the tears that fall they're beautiful and she's a friend of the band's in general she, was she ever a member of the band she's a, a dear friend and she actually uh coached us you know on communication skills and you know because we're you know we're a band we've been together for 10 years it's like a big family and so that's how we approached her because that was her life skills and then through that you know we became really great friends she's like the band psychologist bonnie yeah, I mean, psychologist is a strong word. She actually, she's worked with a few bands. And, um, you know, I think one of the art forms of being in a band that you don't hear about is communication with each other and um, how to continue to develop that and not let it each other become a stagnant thing because we've been together, we've been friends for over 10 years and traveling in small spaces. So I think she really helped us grow and stretch in ways that people aren't always willing to accept help in. You know, we'll forever be grateful for her for that. And then she ended up just being a dear friend who would hop on the road with us. And it was very life-changing being with her and really recognizing how precious um, our time here is. All good lovers out there, peace tonight, peace tonight. To the brokenhearted, to the burdened. When a band learns to communicate or communicate better, what does that mean? Listening, I can think, is a huge part of it. <laughs> like using your communication to to make sure you're hearing each other correctly, which is good for the music also, you know, because that's the first step in creating music together is listening as big as you can, you know, so you open up the potentials of what can weave itself in and out of there. So I think she helped us listen even more than communicate in a way. Which is funny because you think of musicians as already having a pretty darn good ear. There's always room for improvement. <laughs> you can you can listen to drums and, you know, understand that the bridge is coming, but you might not have too many life skills. <laughs> uh, from the ear to the voice a little bit, there are currently five members of Elephant Revival, and it gives your sound a real diversity. Uh, for instance... In the track we heard, Peace Tonight, it's really Dan's voice that's predominant. 
Uh, but in others, Bonnie, it's your voice that takes center stage. And in past recordings, I understand you've divided the vocal lifting among other bandmates as well. And it strikes me as so different from a band with one lead vocalist. You know, mm-hmm. Chris Martin is the sound of Coldplay or something like that. W- what do you like about that? And then are there any disadvantages maybe to even like the identity of Elephant Revival when you've got so many different voices? I like that we have a lot of different textures that we can utilize depending on what the song seems to call for. And that um, there's kind of some space for a song to find its place that way. So when you write a song, is it that you don't necessarily imagine who's singing it at that point? It depends on the song, and it depends on the writer. I mean, Dan and I write most of the songs, and they usually do start out alone and with the voices that end up singing them. So, So there is that kind of thread but um there's other songs like raindrops is a song dan and i wrote together that was just started with his guitar part playing over and over and me singing in the next room to his guitar part not really thinking about who would end up singing that but just thinking oh wow this fits and right into what he's playing in the next room and I, i imagined that as being more of a duet but it ended up being more of a song that i just sang raindrops on the He said, just stop and listen Constant as the earthquakes As the day breaks Stop and listen I think I was just coming up with a progression and finger-picking and uh, much to my delight, Bonnie was writing lyrics to it and it just sort of worked out and it's worked out like that a few times. (laughs) Um... Well, there's this like non-verbal communication between you guys. <laughs> a lot of that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's true. But the writing is really democratic, right? It's not just the two of you or, or just you. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we'll sit around during rehearsal or, or just writing, you know, as a group and, and we'll um, start throwing songs at the wall and seeing what sticks, you know, no matter who wrote it. And everybody has a good sense of, you know, what would fit best with the band. And, you know, on this particular record, Dan Rose wrote uh, When I Fall. And it was pretty apparent that it was a strong song. And, you know, it was kind of unanimous that perhaps I would sing it. A light beyond the dark A love that is unbound Our conversation with the Netherlands folk band Elephant Revival continues after a break on a musical episode of Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's return to my conversation with two members of the Netherlands folk band Elephant Revival. Singer Bonnie Payne also plays washboard and musical saw, and Daniel Rodriguez sings and plays guitar. We spoke in April about their new album, Pedals, and I asked Payne about her cello. This is the first time she has put it on an Elephant Revival record. That was exciting and um the producer chose we gave him an array of songs and some of the songs that he chose involved me 
playing the cello, which was fun to have an actual melodic instrument to convey the song on instead of a washboard or a drum to actually have something that you could emphasize the notes with. Because um, washboard and drum, that's what you're accustomed to. Yeah, that and musical saw. Mm-hmm. So the cello is like a whole different voice to play with. And um, the first song on the album is called Hello You Who, and that's that and um, Further Shore are both part of that story that I was telling you about. You can kind of feel some similarities in them, I think. That but. serial story that you're telling. <laughs> what What is that story? Well, it's a long story, so <laughs> I could tell you a tiny piece of it. Give me, yes, the Cliff Notes version. Um, so the first song on the album is um, When Two People Meet um, by the Sea. And I'll leave out some specific details there, but the... Um, they have a child, and that child's story is in the very first album that we recorded called Kurik. That, or the song is called Kurik, where the child gets uh, taken out to sea. And then there's a song in the middle of this new album uh, in Petals called Further Shore, and that's when the child grows up and tells of his adventures of what happened while he was out there. I've seen the furthest of the shore, I felt the deepest of the sea Carried away that fateful day, my mother calling after me Heard my mother calling after me It sounds like some of the songs on this album really have been percolating for a long time. Is that true? Like a decade in some cases. That is true, yeah, yeah. some of them. And some of them were brand new, too. How do you make note of songs or ideas that come to you? I mean, is there just like a big file cabinet? Is there a file on your smartphone with all of these <laughs> ideas? Or do you just keep them in your noggins? For me, there's files everywhere. There's files on my iPhone. There's uh, many notebooks that I may forget where they are. I forget of, of songs quite a bit and need to be rem- reminded of them. I save bits of his songs sometimes because I'm like, oh, you're going to forget that, and that is beautiful. Yeah, and sometimes Bonnie <laughs> will will borrow my phone if she doesn't have hers so that she can call her her voicemail and leave one of her songs that she's writing on my voicemail, or her vo- voicemail. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that one other ritual you have besides voicemails is you wear a special pair of gloves, Bonnie. (laughs) And I understand this is true when you are playing washboard, for instance. Yeah, only when I play washboard, actually. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, Yeah, that could be a callus-making instrument. Is that why? Um, I sew the finger picks on with dental floss so they don't fly off. Um, There's banjo picks on those gloves. And so that helps amplify um, the tapping on the washboard. Drifting round Cold river bound How did you come up with that clever glove concept? Um, well, my dad uh, had the idea to put the banjo picks on my fingers. Your dad? Um, mm-hmm. And then I played with just finger picks for a year or so. And then his mother passed away, and I, my grandmother, and I inherited a box of antique driving gloves. And my fingers were getting pretty torn up, and I was losing banjo picks. And so uh, we decided to try sewing the picks onto a pair of those gloves, which ended up working out. And then I, you know, I wear through them every nine months, and I had this supply of 
beautiful antique leather gloves that I knew what to do with all of a sudden. So. They're heirloom gloves. They mm-hmm, very pretty. Cool. The washboard <laughs> uh, are, are heirloom too. I'm, well, no, they're not heirloom, but you can only find the type that she likes at uh, antique stores. Mm-hmm. So you're not getting these by any means from instrument stores. They're no. true just antique washboards. Yeah, they're pretty specific. I quit telling which ones because they're harder and harder to find. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to give it away. Yeah. Did you guys imagine back in 06 that you'd still be playing together these many years later? Yeah, it was pretty clear for me. <laughs> I didn't know, but I, I knew that we would be friends for most likely life, but I didn't know that we'd still be traveling the country together. Bonnie, that's so optimistic. I just feel like I don't, I can't say what the next year of my life will be. Yeah. How, where did the certainty come from that in, in a decade you'd still be together as Elephant Revival? Well, I can't say that I was 100% certain. You never know with anybody, but I felt like with um, with the music having the feeling of momentum that it had for me, like with with Dan's songs particularly, like I felt a place in them instantly and like with you know each of the band members if something was conflictual or something that we needed to grow through there was just an overall willingness to grow this notion of sticking together in cohesion uh this relates actually to the title of the band elephant revival Mm -hmm. who wants to tell that story um dan pointed at bonnie you've been volunteered (laughs) (laughs) okay so um Yeah, Dango Rose, our bass player, was busking in front of the Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago. And there were two elephants that had lived together for a long time who got separated. One was bought by the Salt Lake City Zoo. And they both passed away within a relatively close time of each other. And some speculate that it was from heartbreak because they're tribal creatures. They form really strong bonds when they live together. And to be alone or, you know, separated and alone can be really hard on them. So they both died separated from each other in in short order. You know, within a week or so of being separated. Yeah, and we were all spread out all over the country at the time. I was in Oklahoma, Dan was in Connecticut. And so Dango saw that as kind of a sign to leave Chicago and sent us a message to come together as what felt like a tribe. You know, he was looking for his his tribe mates or whatever, and um, he sent me a text message that said, Elephant Revival concept, question mark, and a list of, you know, the Stage Stop, Pearl Street Pub, like all these little venues in Colorado mostly and in Oklahoma where I was as a potential small tour. And I just said, sure. (laughs) And Elephant Revival was born. Uh, Let's go out with one more song, On and On. And I noticed that about two minutes into this song, it morphs into this kind of chant Mm-hmm. On and on and on and on. And it changed from me from words to just pure sound. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Lyrically, you know, as the person who wrote it, um, I just couldn't be more happier with how it came out. And yeah, I think it's good uh, for chorus, you know, for people to get entranced. And uh, if it's a particular word or a particular sound, to just let that trance take over. And uh, I think that happens on this song for a little bit. Bonnie Dan, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having us. Truth can die ever so young, reborn upon the beds of the dying tongue. So many have sworn for all truths to be said. 
night it falls upon desire where our forgotten dreams can be seen and in our eternal flames and fire our bodies wax and wane and it goes on and on and on and on it goes it goes on and on and on and on it goes on and on and on and on on and on and on Daniel Rodriguez and Bonnie Payne of the Netherlands folk band Elephant Revival. We spoke earlier this year about their latest album, Petals. And that's our music special, produced by Stephanie Wolf. I'm Ryan Warner. <laughs>